Appendix N Podcast, Episode 3, The Gods of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. This is the show where we read and discuss the authors that influenced Gary Gygax, one of the creators of Dungeons & Dragons, the most important game in the universe. In the 1979 edition of the Dungeon Master's Guide, Gygax published a list of his favorite fantasy authors, and this list has come to be known simply as Appendix N. Every month on this show, we will read a book and talk about it. We will review the story and talk about how it relates to the game being played at your table. If you would like to be a part of the show, you can email the host of The Tome Show, Jeff Greiner, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Listen to the end of the episode for a list of some upcoming books. Before we get to the program, let us take a moment to mention our sponsor, Noble Knight, online retailer of new and out-of-print role-playing games, board games, and miniatures since 1997. They have helped thousands of gamers from across the world save money and find exactly what they need. You can visit them on the web at www.noblenight.com. My pick for this episode is the role-playing game Space 1889 Red Sands by Pinnacle Entertainment. You can find it at Noble Knight for $27. Joining me today for for our discussion of The Gods of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, is guest and friend of the Tome Show, uh, Jay Kent. Dum dum dum. Well, I guess I guess a friend of Appendix and I, I should say. Have have you been on the Tome Show? Uh, one episode. They reviewed some old D and D modules, and okay. I uh, participated okay. in that. So I guess I guess we we are a Tome Show production. So I guess I guess friend of the Tome Show is is the correct phrase. Anyways, welcome, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, you were my first guest. We talked about uh, a princess of Mars yes, in our we in did. our in our first episode. And now we are back to talk about uh, the sequel. Uh, what did you think of this book overall? Just just a quick a quick opinion. Um, a better version of the first book, I guess, might be a, a way of saying it, or a better written version. Of course, obviously, it's a continuation. Story elements very different, but uh, I think I thought it was a better book. Okay. Um, so yes, we we read uh, the Gods of Mars. A sequel to A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs, born 1875. Uh, just a little, a little uh, short bit of uh, biographical information. Uh, a Princess of Mars ran from February to July 1912, and this story, uh, The Gods of Mars, was published in the All Story, the same, the same uh, publication, from January to May of 1913. So pretty much the following year. Uh, in between, however, uh, Burroughs had published his first Tarzan story in October 1912. Now, according to uh, Wikipedia and you know, according to general knowledge, uh, Tarzan has become a, a cultural uh, phenomenon. Um, how, how quickly that, that happened, I, I don't really know. It, it's probable that... Uh, in the time between Tarzan's first publication and the time this story was running, you know, it, it, it probably took a little while to to circulate. But we we do know that around 1915 or, or 1919, 
Uh, Burroughs had made enough money off of Tarzan to purchase land for a ranch north of Los Angeles, and he called it Tarzana. So, um, <laughs> very fitting. Burroughs's star was was rising at this at this time, but but had not yet um, reached its its zenith. And this was still this was still like a year, little little over a year into into his his writing uh, career. So, okay, so getting getting to the story, uh, we we once again revisit our hero John Carter, gentleman of Virginia, um, <clears throat> who at at the end of the last story died, and now he's back. Uh, he was he was buried in a strange tomb that uh, had a locked door from the inside. And yep. the, the the sarcophagus was was open, and um, and he didn't he he wasn't embalmed or otherwise right. his body was not prepared in any way either. Almost like he was expecting to uh, get up again, which we learned that he he basically has. So, uh, just just to just to put together a, a general timeline, right? So. John Carter goes to Mars for the first time. He's he's there for ten years. He he comes back and gives his notes to his nephew. I'm I'm doing air quotes here. His his nephew, who is Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, and then dies sometime thereafter, right? Yeah. And it's it's and, and he's he's buried in this in this uh, strange tomb, and and because of his will, it's actually about uh, 10 years after that, that that the first story is actually published. And it's not until after A Princess of Mars has been, has been published that Burroughs finds out that John Carter is still, is still alive. Uh, he receives, uh, I think, I think, I think a, a, a telegram from him and goes to meet him at a, at a hotel and finds him there uh, in the flesh. And he gives Burroughs yet another stack of notes from his you know from from his his last 10 years his 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 second period of of 10 years on on Mars which he presumably has been has been living uh the 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 entire time that that we've been reading uh the first book right yeah well and it makes sense too because his body in the Arizona cave laid there dormant for 10 years while he was initially gone. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense that this time he's, you know, he's prepared himself a little better within, you know, the tomb that secures his body that allows, you know, he can only, he's the only one who can get out because the lock is only open from the inside rather than from the outside. So, you know, presumably he is, he's quote unquote died as using your air quotes again. And uh, he is now existing on Mars while his nephew is, you know, going through the, the process of publishing his notes and things like that, otherwise attending to his estate. So. Right, but there's there, there's no there's no wait period uh, this time. His so this this story is being published uh, immediately. So I, I guess I guess as we're as we are reading this 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 story, we can assume that Carter is safely on Mars. You know, having having further adventures. I guess. Okay, so. Uh. Carter appears on Mars again, completely 
you know, you're going through this this astral projection. We really, really don't know why. Just like he he wished to be there, right? To to be re- reunited with uh, Dejah Thoris. Yeah, true love knows no bounds right. across the space and time of yeah. But for some reason, he had to wait ten years. Um. But anyways, well, there is a rebate period, I guess. I guess I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't wind up uh, in the same place that he wound up uh, last time. <clears throat> uh, we we find him in the mysterious uh, valley door, uh, which we I we we heard hints of this place in the in in the last book, right? Right. Uh, I think we were we were told that Martians live for like about a thousand years, and if if they're not killed by violence. Uh, they take a voluntary pilgrimage down the river Is to the Valley Door, which is at the South Pole, uh, and they don't come back. Yep. That's supposedly the entrance to there. The Red Martians and Green Martians believe that that is the at the end of this pilgrimage is you enter into heaven. Uh, there must be you know something similar to the pearly gates awaits you. They don't really know, but something awaits you at the end, which you receives you into a blissful mm-hmm. uh, existence. Right. And it's it's strongly uh, encouraged that you're you're not allowed to come back, and if you if you do come back, you are you are shunned and put to death. Yes, it is heresy. Right. So why don't you tell us? Since I've been talking for a long time, why don't you tell us what uh, Carter finds in the Valley Door? Well, I- ironically, and and or I guess not ironically, I should say serendipitously. He finds a pack of green men who are fighting strange creatures, these plant men and uh, the former, the white apes that were also introduced in the, in the first book. But these plant men are new. Right. Um, honestly, as I was reading the book, what I imagined was, uh, what, you know, in Mario, the, the little plant guys that pop out of the pipes and, and shoot fireballs at you. I imagined those. So these Venus flytrap like things. I don't think that's that, quite what they look like. They're, no, they're they don't. More, but that's what I have. They're humanoid, and they've and they they've got like baby plant men hanging from their arm armpits. They do, and and their but their appendages, their arms right. are more like octopi, uh, octopus arms, or squid arms, or something. Like that. In other words, you're right. They have human form to some degree with uh, Ish, you know, yes. these, these pods that hang from them. But their arms, in particular, are you know these wavy tentacly things. But yeah, it's just funny. As I was reading it, I was envisioning these Mario-type plants. But anyways, uh, these this pack of green men is under attack. Of course, lo and behold, who is at the head of the green this pack of green men? But his old friend Tars Thar- Tars Tarkas. Yeah. And uh, the Jedi of Thark, and of course, he is reunited with his ally and companion, compatriot in arms. And of course, they are besieged immediately by even more of these these enemies, the white apes, the plant men. They manage to make their escape through a, a tree. They go through a cave, and lo and behold, they find themselves in. Do you wish to continue, or do you want me to keep going? Uh, what is, so, what's this place called? The 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 caves of mystery, or, or something? Uh, something like that. Yeah. But it's it's basically yeah a, the chamber of mystery. Yeah. It's it's basically Jay, a dungeon. Wouldn't yes, you it say? is. So, it is very much so. So I, I, I found this. I find this very fascinating because there's, there's a number of what, what we would call dungeons in, in both this book and the sequel, uh, Warlord. Um, 
that are are very much like like early Dungeons and Dragons dungeons. They're 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 big. They're dark. There's lots of secret uh, passageways, and there's all manner of monsters just randomly lurking. Yes, <laughs> as well as civilizations and odd things that are just popping up. Actually. Yeah. There, I, in fact, it's funny you mentioned that. I remember reading this chapter, and they enter in, and there's a, a booming voice, which I immediately thought, "Oh, that's a magic mouth," you know. <laughs> so, yeah. So, it, it, so I've I've heard over and over again, you know, the the Lord of the Rings, the Mines of Moria, was the most likely inspiration for the Dungeons and Dragons dungeon. It's the quintessential quintessential dungeon. But no, here. We have what what is basically a a Dungeons and Dragons dungeon. It's 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 an innocent looking entrance in a cave that that leads to, to this complex series of of tunnels, and and yeah, there's 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 monsters and and like you said, there, there's whole civilizations and there's and there's traps. So uh, this is this is amazing stuff. Um, but ultimately, what uh, Carter finds uh, is another race. So we've 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 had the red men and we've had the green men. So in in these tunnels Carter finds the the white men. Um which they they call themselves uh the therns. And yes. they are they are white as in caucasian like it's not, not like a milky al- albino white. They're they're white like um you know Euro- Europeans and and you know uh, and oh, Caucasian, have, like you said, yes. Yeah, and they're they're bald, but they wear these uh, blonde wigs, right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I guess they they basically all look like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in uh, Conan, the the Barbarian, because they they've yeah. got this this long blonde <laughs> hair, and the at least the 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 nobles who call themselves the the Holy Therns all all have this circlet. Around their around their their head with with a with one of the precious Martian uh, gemstones on it. Yeah, well, it's to simply make sure that their wig doesn't fall off. You know, secure the wig to the. <laughs> and we we eventually learn that these holy therns have been for for you know who knows how long, uh, ma- maintaining the 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 myth. That uh, the valley door is a paradise, and really, it's full of monsters. And when you get to the end of the river Is, uh, you're you you don't get to go to heaven. You get instead you get eaten by plant men. <laughs> Which yeah. Or or yeah. you get you get enslaved by by the holy therns, and yeah. they've they've sort of been keeping this this religion alive, like just to. I guess just for their own amusement, for their 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 own ego. Um, well, it's it's their ma- it's their mode of survival in many ways. I mean, the I, it plays into their their mythology. I mean, considering they're pretending to be high priests and and gods in many ways, they have their own mythology, such as the plant men are actually resurrected or reincarnated to be a better word, uh, therns. And right. So, yeah. That, and I, so I, yeah. Anyway, so so those who make the pilgrimages and become plant food, for lack of a better word, uh, are essentially, you know, they're propagating. They believe their own myths that these people, that they're lesser races, and, you know, that they're essentially food for 
not only their plant men, but they they themselves also eat these lesser races. It's you know they there's right. a diatribe in there. John Carter's disgusted, and they're like, "Well, don't you eat lesser races?" And they're he's like, "Well, we eat cows. They're not. They don't think, you know." And and you know, and, and they're like, "Well, you guys are lesser races to us, and so we eat you guys." Anyways, I wasn't, I wasn't an, sure. I wasn't sure if if the therns were were, were cannibals, but I I I I, 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 don't, I, I know the black men were. Yes, which, which we're going to get to. I, I, okay. I don't remember if if the Therns ate people or just or just kept them as slaves. I'll have to go back and check that. Yeah, uh, you know, you may be right. I, I'm pretty sure. I think they both did. But anyways, I, I there's two asides I wanted to make they're, here. They're, they're both pretty horrible. Yeah, neither one is. I, I wouldn't want to be buddy buddies with either race. Right. But, so but, the Therns worship the goddess Is, which is, which I, is the same goddess that uh, the the red and green men of the of the outer world worship. But they're they're also constantly at war with the black men who call themselves the the firstborn and and the thirds have no idea where the black men come from, right? Yeah, they, well, they, they just descend in myth- these. Yeah, yeah. Well, their mythology is that they live on one of the moons, one of right. the two moons. Did you did you want to did you want to say say more? Uh, well, no. That's that's the the you know you're you're correct. They, these the thirds who you know. Basically, are you know the the lesser races are the red, the green, and and uh, races. The Therns themselves are victims of these these first this this first race. Right, and, first. and so they don't they don't know where the black men come from. They they probably think of the black men as another lesser race. They just happen to have this superior uh, technology, and they they descend out of nowhere to basically pick them off, and they're they're at at their mercy. Like right? I think. The, the the last time the Therns tried to fight the black men, uh, the black men just got together their entire fleet and sent the Therns back to the Stone Age. Yeah. So they they just let the black men pick them off for for sport because they have no other other option. Yeah, they do fight back, but you're right. They in particular, he makes reference to the flying machines. John Carter uh, hijacks one of the flying machines, and he asks them. He's, he says, "Why don't he has? There's a, a a girl who's who's on board who's who's a thern. He says, well, why don't you guys do this?' And they said, "Well, last time we did this, you know, they basically, like you said, blasted us back into the Stone Age. Uh, you know, I, I did want to make two asides before we continue. The the first is that for those who've seen the movie, these therns are obviously uh, they're part of the movie. You can tell that the the people who made the movie kind of brought them forward mm. and you know used them as." Obviously, not the same way that 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 Burroughs does in this novel, but they are, you know, they're present, and that's where they come from. Is they come from this novel here. The second is is we're introduced to to two pe- to two unique people. The first is Thuvia, who is a, a red woman. Did you want to talk about her later, or did you want to? Yeah, we can we can yeah. Um, let's 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 get to the new characters a, a bit a bit later. Uh, okay. But yeah, we we're, we're 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 briefly introduced to to uh, Thuvia, who's a a red Martian uh, princess, and we're introduced to Feodor, who's a white Martian princess, because John Carter never meets any woman who is not a princess. You're correct. Yeah, that was pretty much my commentary as unless, well. Unless unless she's thoroughly evil. Yes. <laughs> but um, yeah, we'll 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 get to the new characters in a bit. Um, okay. So, uh, Carter, yeah, so as, as they're escaping from, uh, the Therns, uh, 
John Carter and his his party are attacked by these these black pirates, right? And lo and behold, turns out that the black pirates, uh, the firstborn, don't come from the moon. Uh, they actually come from deeper within the valley door, and, and they, they actually live in the temple of Is itself. And uh, they've been feeding lies to the white men for untold ages, uh, and, and they believe that they are actually the most superior race on, on, um, on Mars. Um, and I, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I, I, I think that, I think that these black men are actually like black, like, like, like onyx, like they're, they're not black, like Africans. Uh, yeah, that's the impression. I, in fact, I, speaking of another influence, uh, I pictured them as, you might say the human version of drow or dro, however you say it, where it's, you know, their skin is very, it's almost an inky black right. rather it's, than it's, simply. It's uh, pitch black. Um. <clears throat> yeah, it says here, uh, black iris eyes, bodies like polished ebony. And, you know, we, we, we talked a bit about um, whether, whether or not, you know, you know, Burroughs is, 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 is racist or, or, you know, what are his, his views on, on, on race and he he makes a point, you know. Both both the the black men and the white men are horribly evil, but he particularly with 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 the black men, he he takes great pains to describe how good looking that they are, right? And he 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 even says at one point, you know, it it, it may seem strange for a southern man to say this, but you know, I was I was quite taken with. You know the 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 features of these of these of of this of this of of this race. I don't right. don't have the well, quote he, here. He's also very complimentary of their fighting prowess, which you know to him is that is the that is the ultimate expression of of you know manliness is how well do you fight, and you know he's very complimentary of them not only for their looks but for their fighting prowess. You know for their ability to basically you know slaughter the Thurns who are you know, a technologically advanced race compared to the other races. Right. I, 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 I did pull, um, one passage here from, from when he's been, he's been kidnapped that, that I just, I just want to read the, the harness of the commanding officer was a solid mass of diamonds against ah. the ebony background of his skin. They blazed out with a peculiar, peculiarly accentuated effulgence. The whole scene was enchanting. The handsome men, the barbaric splendor of the accoutrements, the polished skeel wool of the deck, the gloriously grained serapis of the cabins, inlaid with priceless jewels and precious metals in intricate and beautiful design, the burnished gold of handrails, the shining metal of the guns. Like, I... I so, I... I I, I'm listening to the the audiobook, and and this passage just like comes, you know, in the in the middle of the story, and like, it it's so homoerotic, the, you know, the 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 handsome men, the shining metal guns, all the jewels everywhere, and 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 I, I'm sure it, it probably wasn't even intended to to be that way. But it, I, I just found it to be such an amazing example of what what to 
to to us in the you know early twenty first century just just seems like overly overly bombastic and flowery language. Well, and, and it is very it is very male centric. I mean, obviously the entire series is male centric. Yes, but you, you're right. It is a very you know the, the ideals that that he espouses. That you know, obviously he compliments them on their looks and you know their ability to fight. He you know uh, he he doesn't necessarily talk about their diplomacy. Of course, you don't really see any demonstrated. But but uh, yeah, he's he's very yeah. <laughs> he, he he writes a man's writes a man's novel. You know, if right. these are the equivalent of a, a romance, I suppose, for men. Yeah, in 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 an in an age when like uh, people just weren't conscious of uh, homosexuality, I guess like it it wouldn't even occur to them that there there might be something uh, you know sexual about about this about this this uh, passage. Um. Okay, so that 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 aside, um. <clears throat> So we, we we eventually get to the temple of of Is because the the firstborn kidnap uh, Carter and and his his companions and uh, take them there, and we find that that uh, Isis herself, the the goddess that everyone on Barsoom uh, worships, is actually a shriveled old woman. Yeah, that's a very entertaining passage too. The way they have to, the way when they're presented, they have to crawl on hands and knees backwards, and then you know, and then stand up without facing her, and then you know he is with uh, at the time he's with uh, how did you say it? Fe- I call her Fedor. I, Fe- I don't know. Uh, the the audiobook called her Feodor. Feodor. Okay. All right. I, uh, Feodor is in the audience chamber, and of course she is permitted to. It is of note actually I, that the firstborn only capture women. They don't capture men. They slaughter the Thern men, but then uh, kidnap the Thern women and and other other women of other races too. Whoever happens to be among mm. the Thern, but yeah, so that that is something. It, the fact that they and they're and they're them. slaves to Isis for a year and then yeah. they die. Exactly. You know, and it's 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 assumed that it's because they looked on the radiance of the goddess, but it's really because uh, she kills them and eats them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so right, so in, in, you look in, tasty. I'll give you a year to get all plump. <laughs> so just just like an an example of of how Burroughs likes to draw things things out, right? So they're 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 crawling backwards into this into in, into this chamber, and uh, you know, first first Thuvia is per, per, permitted to look, right, and she gives like this this gasp of astonishment, and and in the in the narration carter's thinking to himself well this must be the most beautiful yeah. woman in the world for <laughs> thuvia to to gasp like this and this this goes on for like you know paragraphs because it's burrows and he doesn't use one word when he can use 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 10 yeah <laughs> and then and then you know carter himself turns around and it's 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 this shriveled old woman who's probably thousands of years old because we i think we we eventually learn that if it wasn't for you know the the plant men eating everyone at 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 the end of their journey down the river is Martians pretty much live forever we don't we don't really know what their lifespan is yeah you know that's as as i was preparing some notes myself for this i seem to recall that it said that but i couldn't find the passage but you, so that is the case i wasn't imagining in that 
and and even even the firstborn believe that Isis is a is a goddess because she's she's very carefully maintained this this facade. I mean, she actually she she's a great villain. I mean, she's yeah. she's on level with Emperor Palpatine, in my opinion. She's managed to convince an entire planet that she is a goddess, and her her word is to be is to be feared. Right? They they they. So the 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 black men actually believe that like she can she can kill you with a with a thought, or if you if you say blasphemy me you know against her, she can you know call down you know whatever you know you know smite you. So. I yeah, it's it's really it's really like ingenious how she's managed to keep this entire planet under her thumb, and then of course you know John Carter, you know the 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 guy from outside this this whole system just comes in, and he can see the Emperor's clothes for for what they are. Yeah, right. I'll get you, John Carter. Right, so he he immediately sees right through Isis, like she's she's no she's no goddess, and he slowly over the course of the story begins to unravel the whole uh, religion, you know, very very rational, you know, uh, that very very rational, very very sensibly. He 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 starts by by convincing uh, one of the black men that that he's imprisoned with that, you know, if Isis were really a goddess. She'd smite us right here and now, yeah. And, and then it just sort of proceeds from there until he's eventually can, you know, gotten all of Mars on his side. Yep. Well, yeah, yeah, a good chunk of them at least, and yeah, then good, he fights good, the other half. Yeah. <laughs> a good, a good chunk. So yeah. So I, I want to comment here that so this this whole story seems to be a a commentary on religion. I mean down to the fact that we have a hero whose initials are JC and in the last story he died to save an entire planet and now he's and now he's he's back. And he's he's casting down, you know, the the idols of this false religion here in in a place that's supposed to be kind of like almost a, a reverse garden of Eden. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. I can see the comparison. So I, I did some research, and the very first thing that comes up when you type in Edgar Rice Burroughs and religion is uh, an interesting article that, on it, it looks like it's it's on someone's uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs fan webpage. I'll I'll link it in the in the show notes. But the the title of the article is "The Gods of Edgar Rice Burroughs: Reason versus Superstition." And it's from something called um, ERB Zine. Which, I mean, this this page looks like it hasn't been updated in in about you know twenty years. So uh, it, it's a step above GeoCities. I'll, but yeah, right. It, it does look that way. But it's, I mean, it's looks like it's as close to a peer reviewed journal as we're gonna get on this show. But oh, you know what's funny. It says at the very bottom. It says all original material, copyright two thousand nine. So, <laughs> yeah, but this, I mean, this this guy does like cite sources, like like letters and things. Yeah, that, he does. That friends. It's and, very thorough. Yeah. yeah. So he he mentions that uh, Burroughs' father, Civil War veteran Major George Tyler Burroughs, uh, had had very well known uh, negative opinions about the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, which which he 
interpreted as fanaticism. Um, he, you know, he's 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 recorded as uh, being excused from jury duty uh, for for his his opinions, and he he apparently passed this on to his son Edgar. Um, and I mean this this whole article goes goes on to very thoroughly detail. Uh, Burroughs' uh, opinions on religion. He he was very he was he was he was a skeptic. He he was he was a skeptic of of organized uh, religion, and you know the the you know the the harm that that, that they could do, uh, I guess to to the cause of reason. Uh, it, it it even cites an article that he wrote in the newspaper in response to the scopes to to the to the scopes uh, uh, monkey trial. Where he he defends uh, evolution, um, so yeah, I I I, I oh, obviously yeah. have have not read this entire article because it's it's very long, but I will I will link it in the in the show notes. But um, yeah, I, I find this very fascinating. What do what do you uh, make of this? Well, I, I actually this is a great find. Um, you know, it, it's not entirely surprising that his his. Uh, his religious views were that. Um, in, in many ways, I, I guess it, it hadn't been too much prior that um, Charles Darwin had published the uh, his work. I, I don't know why it's escaping me the title, but you know th- there was a lot of. Um, I, I mean, the Age of Enlightenment had already kind of was well underway, but you know here on here in America there was an religious religious revival in the early nineteenth century. And of course, anytime you have something like that, there's usually some sort of backlash or some sort of pendulum swing the opposite direction. So in the latter half of the century, there was a lot of religious skepticism and things like that. And apparently he was, you know, being, an, I mean, he was an educated man. Mm-hmm. You could tell from the fact that he could you know, write a book. He was a fairly educated man. And, and, and he seems to have kept up with like the, the, the science of the time. Yeah. Well, as such as it was, yes. And, um, yeah, so it doesn't surprise me that his views were the what they were. Of course, at the same time, it, you know, it was still very much Christianity was the prevailing uh, religion in the United States, and so it wouldn't have surprised me if he was a devout Christian and had just decided. I mean, after all, C.S. Lewis, uh, he was a devout Christian, and he still wrote a fantastic series of books, you know, the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, and um, mm-hmm. but obviously very different flavor than than the Edgar Rice Burroughs tales, so. Um, but yeah, I, I could see where, uh, you know, having peruse or not perusing, but, uh, you know, thumbing through this, this article, scrolling through very quickly and looking at the quotes, like the one you, you quoted and then some of the other ones, it's, um, yeah, it, it, it makes sense that he was that way. And if, and it does make sense that, that he had his hero in this book, uh, essentially debunk the superstitious religion that, uh, that was prevalent on Mars at the time. Yeah. Lewis, Lewis, uh, is a is a whole other can of worms. I mean, he was um, um, mo- most of the Narnia is is a very thinly 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 disguised uh, biblical allegory, and he he wrote you know both both fiction and and essays ex- extensively on the topic of oh yeah yeah and nonfiction too yeah not he was very much a devout Christian yeah, yeah. C S Lewis was but yeah anyways um, but yeah uh, Burroughs Burroughs seems to be more of of a skeptic. The the question is though, was it his skepticism that influenced the story, or did he? Uh, in other words, was it simply con- uh, coincidental 
that or was this a in particular was there an essay that he was trying to to demonstrate well, I that, think you know, I think um, I mean he's 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 trying to sell this story as entertainment in 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 a monthly magazine that's going to be like I don't I I guess I I would like to know like who the who the usual audience of this type of story was like like what what class of of men cuz I cause I'm assuming it was it was mostly men you know would would subscribe to this magazine and be reading the story that that might uh inform our discussion a bit but I I I think he's he's primarily just trying to, to tell a a rollicking good good yarn. I would and, agree. And any that. sort of, you know, and, and he's he's just building a world that you know as as he you know this this is how he sees the world, and he's just building the world as he sees it, and he's just trying to put as much you know violence and 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 death you know to to make it interesting into the story. Uh, I there there I, I think there there's even somewhere in this article that. I, I very briefly skimmed where where he actually I think writes to another author or writes about another author who he he, he felt was was um, too too preachy, uh, you know, saying that 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 he you know I I write to to entertain I don't I don't write to you know tell people what to think. So, um, all right. So we've we've pretty thoroughly acquitted Burroughs on the charges that he's a a racist because he, he seems to be very positive on the subject of of races coming coming together and he, he seems to be very uh um progressive for his time uh, in in regards to views on religion but now now we we come back to those new female characters and let's let's talk about his his um views on on sex or 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 how he <laughs> How does the how genders does, right? How do you say sex? You don't mean the act. You mean the genders. Yeah, because there's there's no sex in this book, despite the fact that yeah. everyone's naked. Sex as a as a motive is 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 never oh, overtly stated, right? Actually, so refresh my memory. So in the first book, obviously, he he describes that towards the beginning to set the the, the tone and the mood. How you know no one wears clothes on Mars, right? It, it's, I don't. It's so hot, I guess. Yeah, uh, and he doesn't really say anything about that in this book that I recall. He, I, he, he describes everyone like wearing harnesses, and yeah, and that's about it. Yeah, that, and that's that's what I recall too. Which is, I mean, it's nice because you kind of got the impression in the first book. If he had carried it any further, you you might have kind of like, well, this this guy has some sort of fixation with this, but. Um, Considering he, you know, that was really only the introduction of, of the first book, and then after that he really doesn't deal with it at all. Well, and then in this book goes completely the, the entire length of the novel with, you know, just references to little amounts of clothing, really no overt references to nudity or, or anything. And especially, as you said, you know, sex is definitely no motivation for uh, any, you know, for the actions of, of right. the heroes. So. I, think, I think it's really just the, the time period, because this, this was... You know, he he he's not gonna talk about people walking. He, he's 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 not gonna describe people's uh, genitals just just you know hanging out everywhere because yeah. that, that would be considered like scandalous, right? Well, and I for one appreciate that. I mean, you know, and, I, you know, certainly everyone who casts their eyes upon Dejah Thoris, it it can be inferred that they are thinking about sex. 
Right. So well, they, but, they but, at least but very fine to retract. Doesn't yeah. Say it because that would be improper. Well, the interesting thing, so speaking of which, and this is what I was going to reference earlier when we decided we were talking about, we, we talked a little bit about Thuvia and Feodor, and the interesting thing is that here are two women that John Carter rescues, and of course, their almost immediate reaction is to profess their undying love to him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's, it's like, I, I guess, you know, we were talking about a male ego trip. This is, that is definitely part of the John Carter male ego trip as, as as he is proceeding through all and performing all these daring um, feats of bravado, he happens to rescue a couple women, and of course they are immediately drawn to him. And you know, they in fact, I, I believe Thuvia at one time says, "If I can't be your wife, at least let me be your slave." And you know, of course, John Carter and his his gentlemanly ways, you know, right. politely declines and things. So it, it is kind of a male ego that, that, you know, everyone I come in contact is going to fall in love with me. And it was, you know, it was amusing. I thought that, uh, the, and, the two. And, and yet, and yet he, 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 he says over and, and over again that he's not a romantic and he's not a ladies man. Um, yeah. So these, these are the other two uh, passages that, that I, I, I pulled as being particularly particularly um, uh, amusing, right? So in in A Princess of Mars, uh, he says, I verily believe that a man's way with women is in inverse ratio to his prowess among men. The weakling and the saphead often have great ability to charm the fair sex, while the fighting man, who can face a thousand real dangers unafraid, sits hiding in the shadows like some frightened child. And in 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 the gods of Mars, uh, this this is shortly after I think you know Thuvia uh, professes his her her love for him or, or 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 something. He says, "Never have I been much of a ladies' man, being more concerned with fighting and kindred arts, which have ever seemed to be more befitting a man than mooning over a scented glove, four sizes too small for him." Or kissing a dead flower that that has begun to smell like a cabbage. Yeah, I remember that. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, John Carter. If if we're to believe that these are the opinions of John Carter and not Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, John Carter has some pretty interesting ideas about what it means to be a a, a, a ladies' man. Uh, and. Well. Well, there's, I mean, there is true, there is truth in that, but even the men seem to love him. I mean, maybe not in a, and, and, and Carter in a very seems much to, a platonic seems to, way. Seems to, seems, to, seems to prefer the, the, the company of men. Uh. Well, he knows what to do. You know, he, he can laugh, he can bellow, he can, you know, drink, he can eat with them, he can cross swords with them, he can slap them on the shoulder. With these women, he's like, I, I'm married, what do I do with you? You know, I, I don't know what to do with you. So, I, I in fact, interesting was uh, Feodor, who is, you know, she's a thern, and she views John Carter as one of the members of the lower races. And she, but, you know, she's willing to throw away her divinity, you know, or at least her, her acknowledgement of her divinity to spend, to be with him, you know. So even that, you know, it, it's like, it's not just every woman falls in love, but even, even the, I mean, the only woman who doesn't seem to fall in love with him is the goddess Isis, you know, or Isis, however you say it. Right, I, I think she probably wants to eat him. Um, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, he he does have a lot of meat on those bones. 
you know. But uh, I mean, the 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 second passage, like especially with like the 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 scented glove and the and the flower that smells like dead cabbage, uh, kind of reminds me of uh, Mark Twain in um, in Huckleberry Finn, where he has that that whole chapter where he he sort of makes fun of the the whole um, like prisoners uh, uh, genre, right? So this this is a tangent. So uh, in 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 Huckleberry Finn, there's 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 a there's a chapter where Jim gets like imprisoned, and and the whole thing is supposed to be a a satire on a genre that was popular at the time, stuff like the the Count of Monte Cristo, where mm. like it's it's about a guy in prison, right, and 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 yeah. how right and and his you know daring escapes. Right, and and this this seems to be um, an an indictment. Oh, okay, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, Se- seems se- seems to be uh, just taking on that take taking on like I I guess what what Burroughs felt was the, the fiction of the, like the the romantic fiction of the time. No, oh, but I see what you're saying. I mean, this, well, and in fact, this 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 novel essentially is you know one daring escape after another, and. Uh, you know, he spends, he's at the hands of the Therns, and then he's at the hands of the Firstborn, and then he's at the hands of uh, the the Jed of um, Zodenga, whose name yeah. is Zar. Uh, Zat, Zat, Zat Eris, yeah. Zat Eris, so this yes. Is, this is exactly the, the sort of genre that uh, Twain, Twain would have would have hated. Yeah, um, I could see as, that. As, as much as Burroughs seems to dislike uh, uh, romance. Um, let's you know what let's let's talk about some of these uh, captures because for, for for all his his uh, prowess, uh, John Carter doesn't seem to do very well in the dark, and he doesn't seem to do very well in captivity. Um, so very very briefly in in a, in a Princess of Mars, he's captured by the War Warhoons, and that's like like a whole chapter, and it, like just just. Over the span of a couple of days, he slowly goes crazy until he's seeing like eyes in the dark, and whether whether it's a it's a real monster or or not, I I, I think it was a it was a real monster, right? But yeah, it and in and in, in in this book, the the gods of Mars, um, it, it it seems like he's he's captured and imprisoned uh, several times. Um, yeah, at least at least three that I can think of, and I think there's perhaps more than that. Oh, yeah. you know what? We we haven't even talked about his his son. Well, and actually, actually, that that'd be a nice segue. We're talking about the first time he's in prison. Of course, is when he is he's captured. He's taken to the um, the first their uh, the the firstborn. They put him on the island. Uh, I guess Omian is the name of the sea. Yeah, it's, it's this underground in. sea. So I guess I guess they they are yeah. kind of like the drow because they live they live underground. Yeah, and I, I yeah he he essentially he's um, he's imprisoned with uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, I mean, how how thick is this guy, right? Because he he meets this this boy, right, and he's immediately uh, taken. With this, with this boy, right? And well, and he even says he looks familiar. He looks so familiar, times. and yeah. he, and 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 Carthoris keeps like almost mentioning his his father, yeah. right? 
And, but it, it still takes John Carter chapters and chapters and chapters to, to figure out that this is his son. Well, and it's funny because I wondered, did Burroughs, did Burroughs think that would actually surprise the reader? I, I, I or... honestly don't know because, I mean, this, this was before people were just saturated with, yeah. with genre, right? Yeah, this I mean that his his formulation of it is now cliche. Right. But I don't know I mean, if it was certainly a well known trope back he, then. He probably couldn't have been like the first person, you know, to do a plot twist like this, right? But Well, no, I mean there's the Greek tragedies that had elements of that in it too, so Yeah. So again, like I, I guess I guess, you know, knowing who Burroughs thought would be the primary audience might might help, but yeah, I, I I would have to think that even like your average working class man reading this month to month in the oh come the, on <laughs> right exactly um, what are you an idiot John Jeez <laughs> yeah I totally agree I I thought that was rather amusing <laughs> so okay so at at some point in the story right uh, Carter and and his son and his his retinue. Uh, escape from this whole valley, and they come back to Helium to find that uh, Dejah Thoris is 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 missing, right? Has has gone down the valley is, and it has been captured by uh, the the Black Pirates. And the second half of the story is all about rescuing Dejah Thoris again. Right. Well, it's not just Dejah Thoris who's gone. It's uh, her her grandfather. Yes. Who was who was the Jeddak of Helium? Yes. The, and consequently, the, the king of one of the most mightiest nations on the planet because yeah. his granddaughter was sad went on an expedition and and is now lost yeah right well yeah and and, the, and now the everyone king is and the in, prince in, and right. now the princess yeah, yeah exactly yeah. so what what are we going to do right we, we we need john carter to save us cuz no one else on this planet can figure out um what to do but um so what I was getting to is that um, before the, the uh, before they can they can mount mount the rescue, Carter is imprisoned for almost a year by the the evil interim ruler of Helium, uh, Zat Eris, who's actually also the ruler of Zodanga, through through some political uh, maneuvering, he he has somehow claimed the throne, right? Right. Um, Correct. And this is like an even longer version of the imprisonment story we had in A Princess of, of Mars. Like, he's, you know, just, just, just the, he's, he's overcome by the, by the maddening stillness of everything. Yeah, but he does manage to hold, he does manage to hold himself together much better it seems than in the princess of mars you're right he seemed to almost go insane whereas this one he's in down there for 300 plus days and he's managed just to hold it together enough during that length of time to you know to put together an escape which i'm sure we'll talk about in a bit yeah and you know actually there's 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 an even there's there's another one in 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 uh warlord that's that we'll we'll, we'll talk talk about next time that I, I think is is an even better example, but like it, it it almost seems like, like I, I I have to wonder if if this was not also like a genre at the time, you know, kind of like it, it was in in Mark Twain's day with, uh, the Count of Monte Cristo. If if there weren't like, 
all sorts of stories about people being like imprisoned and their, you know, their 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 personal trauma. Because, like it, it, like he just seems to like break from the from the narrative sometimes to, to talk about, you know, Carter's feelings of of isolation and paranoia. Yeah. Well, in this one too, he also sees the eyes. You know, you mentioned that you referenced the eyes that he saw in the Princess of Mars. He is in the. Uh, he's actually. It's with the Warhoons again, actually. Oh yeah, because he has to rescue um, Tars Tarkas again. That's right. That's who it was. He Tars Tarkas, yeah. and he goes down and he sees the same eyes. So yeah, that was interesting that he referenced those again as well. Yeah. So, all right, we'll, 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 we'll come back to uh, John Carter and the dark and, and prison in Warlord. But, all right, <clears throat> where, where was I going? Well, I, I will say this. So we haven't quite finished the climax of the novel. So that's, you know, you'd mentioned that Dejah Thoris is now captured by right. the, the firstborn. It's almost like they passed as they were, you know, he was getting out and she was getting captured. Right. You know, basically. So, uh Carter very easily deals with uh, Zat Eris, um, and I, you know, I, I don't, I don't remember this guy from the last book because I'm pretty sure Carter killed all the rulers of uh, Zodanga. So, so this, yeah. this has to be a be a be a new guy. Yeah, and that's like, a good I, I can't even figure out like how how on a planet where like strength and fighting prowess is revered. I mean, Zat Zat Eris seems to be. Uh, uh, coward, right? He's 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 more of a schemer than a straight up fighter. Yeah, I mean, he even like when he's he's conf- when he's finally confronted by Carter, he leaps to his own death rather than than fight him. Yeah. So like I I, I don't even know how this guy got to be the the leader. I guess I guess Carter killed everyone in Zodanga, who who might have challenged that you know this guy. So he was he was <laughs> the only one left. The though. only one left. Yeah, yeah, Carter kills a lot of people. He does. <laughs> well, a lot of people die, not only at his hands, but people just die all over this book. I mean, unless you have a name, you're you're pretty much guaranteed to be a red shirt. You're going to die. You know? Right. So so the the book ends with with a pretty epic battle. It's it's, it's kind of a three-way conflict between Carter's horses. He's he's got the Red Martians of Helium and he's he's sort of got the uh He's he's got Tarkus's uh, Green Martians, which he's you know using as as foot soldiers, and they they come over over the mountains and they engage uh, the Therns, but then they're they're both ambushed by by the Black Men, and it's it's this epic three way conflict that I'm sure has inspired countless uh, miniatures uh, war, you know war games. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the can, numbers are staggering too. There were a quarter of a million Tharks and uh, a million fighting men aboard. You know, a million of the red fighting men from Helium, and and I mean, you're talking. You know, this is a major battle. This is you know, lots and lots of men mobilized to rescue this one woman. You know. Yeah. You know. You know. I mean, we're 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 talking about a a planet where we we are told. That everyone's fighting all the time because you know food is so scarce, right? And and killing you means more food for me, and yet everyone is going nuts over this this one woman because she's pretty. Well, it, it it's funny because there's actually a passage 
that Carter basically says in, in a very grandiose style, you know, considering throughout most of these books, he kind of acts the, uh, I guess you might even say humble brag, you know, he, he, he says, I, I, you know, these people love me and I'm not really, you know, I, I do my best and I think they're wonderful, you know, but he finally reaches a point where he says, you know, he's marshalling the forces and he says, look, Everyone in Mars owes me their life directly because of his, you know, because he ended up saving the, you know, the atmosphere right. generator at the very end of the Princess of Mars. Which I, it's funny. There's there's a side note to that. So um, I didn't really pick up on it, but I uh, the first time I read Princess of Mars, or I think, and maybe we mentioned this last show, but so you know, he he ends up marrying Dejah Thoris, and they go for ten years, um, and then he finds out that the atmosphere generators broke. And he, he, it takes him, I, I forget how long, it, it's like three months or something before, it, you know, the atmosphere is going to run out. Three, and three, it's, three days. Three days. Right. And it takes yeah. him until the very last of the, the last hour of the last day to remember, hey, I got these codes stuck in my head. Right. You yeah. Know? We, yeah. And so, you know, I mean, that seemed highly implausible to at least modern, you know, readers. In this particular book, at least... You know, he's. Uh, we see that Dejah Thoris has a year before she's going to be eaten, right. and you know, you think, well, okay, he's got a year, and so you know, of course, he starts his preparations for you know rescuing her, and he and, and uh, then he's 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 captured for three hundred days, right? Three hundred sixty days, you know, almost an yeah. un, un Earth year. Yeah, and but at least he was restrained, whereas in the first one he's like, duh. And this one, it's like, well, I would love to help, but I'm stuck in this prison. So at least I was, I appreciated that literary device a little more. <laughs> at least he wasn't just stupid. He was actually in prison. Well, so. he is kind of stupid because he gets out and he thinks it's been an entire year because it's been yeah. 365 days. And it's not until chapters later that someone tells him, you know, a Martian year is longer than an Earth year. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> and, I, and like, and like. He he he's even quaking with like what do you mean she's alive? It's been a year. What are you? What are you like? This guy lived on Mars for for ten years. He was yeah. a ruler of their people. Yeah, I know. It's obviously a literary device for meant to suspend you know to give suspense for the Earth reader, not the Martian general. I mean, we're we're to understand that that this that this uh you know blockhead. You know, le- left all these you know carefully detailed notes for for his for his you know uh, nephew, which which must have been stacks and stacks of of, of paper that that he wrote over over a couple days because he didn't have time to talk. You know, gotta gotta get back to Mars and my naked princess. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I yeah, I had a good chuckle at that too. It's like, um, what? What do you mean a year is longer than? <laughs> it's like, yeah. <laughs> All right, so we we have an epic battle um, that probably inspired you know countless miniatures games and video games you know for the the last hundred years since this book has been has been uh, published, uh, and and then we get like yet another dungeon right because we we find out that Dejah Thoris has been imprisoned in this like revolving chamber, right. Yeah, and and we we've, we've got this very tense moment where, where Carter's like reaching for her, you know, through you know through the bars, or or something, right? Because he's he's super strong, but he he just can't break through these uh, metal bars, I guess. Yeah, that's uh, 
unfortunately, that's not applied very consistently. Yeah, but you know, yeah. we're can, can can we talk about Carter's strength because it's it's implied in the very beginning of the first story that the reason he's super strong and and can you know jump so so much is because of the difference between Earth and Mars gravity. Right. Like, like, shouldn't that atrophy over time? Like, like, unless he's bench pressing tanks every day, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't like a year in prison, for, for example, like not doing anything? Yeah, you know, I, well, yeah, exactly. Well, two comments on that. You know, I, in fact, I thought the same thing. And then I remember that he'd actually come back to Earth for 10 years. So he'd had to, you know, he'd had a chance to, quote unquote, recoup whatever strength he might have lost. While he was on Mars, yeah, then, the original then, then he was like in a prison for for three hundred days. Yeah, for three hundred days eating, and, eating and, gruel. Yeah, and, well, you know, it must have been high protein gruel or something, you know. <laughs> but the other thing is, is the only in in this particular novel, the only real expression of his strength you see is he jumps. That's really about it, you know. And and there's there, there's a part where the black pirates put him in in binders, which I don't remember if they're metal or or. Nah, you're right. It's but, some but sort of. But he says, "Yeah, I could, yeah. I could easily snap these bonds." Yeah, that's but at the very beginning. I won't tell them, you know, until until the moment is right, you know. So. Yeah. No, I I do remember that, but for the most part, his displays of strength are simply he just jumps about a lot, but, you know, he he doesn't seem he he seems easily overwhelmed, um, by. By, a by, large number of opponents. Yeah, large numbers. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know. It just, you know, it, it, it's an interesting conundrum that, that Burroughs faces. Yeah, the fact that the super strong versus I got to do something to get him into trouble because otherwise there's no suspense. Right. So we've we've got this this uh, tense moment where Dejah Thoris and Thuvia and Feodor are, are you know, being uh, in imprisoned and Carter can't get them out and he has a a, a few last moments you know with with uh, Dejah Thoris but uh, Feodor the 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 evil princess right um you know wants Carter so bad and and he will he you know she, she she doesn't want him to have she she's so jealous of Dejah Thoris that she uh, raises a knife and, yeah. and goes to kill her, and Thuvia jumps in the way, and then there's like, you know, uh, Carter gets smoke in his eyes, and, and and we don't see the the outcome until the warlord, which I thought was a proper cliffhanger. I thought that I thought that I thought this novel ended on a much better suspenseful note than the previous one. The previous one seemed to be kind of like you really thought it was done. Yeah, I I, I didn't think of there was going to be a sequel well, and maybe I mean, he Burroughs, didn't think about Burroughs it probably didn't either yeah yeah exactly but this one has a proper cliffhanger and in fact the two stories together really seem to be one story that just happened to get published as two volumes except that we're supposed to believe that this is all based on notes that carter wrote years after the fact so in the in the notes that 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 Burroughs read, it probably wouldn't have been a cliffhanger because he could just turn the page, right, right. <laughs> um, so I, I guess I guess we're to I guess infer that this is this is um, literary tinkering. Um, what's 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 the term? Uh, well, liter- yeah, I I don't know what the term you're thinking looking for, but Ar- artistic license. 
Oh, yes, there we go. Yeah, that makes sense. But, you know, really, in, in reality, these were published as serials anyway, so there were right. cliffhangers at the end of every... Every every chapter. Not, well, yeah, or whatever segment. I don't know what... I don't know if they literally published them chapter by chapter or if they published a few chapters at a time. Yeah. But, yeah, they definitely, you know, this, so... The, this ran from January to May, so about five months. And there's 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 way more than five chapters, I guess. I don't... I don't well, this, this was a weekly... A weekly magazine, I think. So was it? Okay. Yeah, I don't know. All right. So, well, what do you are. think of it overall? Um, I thought it was phenomenal. I mean, I, th- there's so many cool ideas in this in this book, from the the dungeons to the creatures to this whole like religious uh, con- conspiracy, right? Um, you know, the the only thing I didn't really like was Thuvia and Theodore because they're basically the same character. One's you know one's good and one's evil, and they're they're both just there to stroke uh, Carter's ego. But I mean, the rest of it is is amazing. I I would agree. Uh, I I didn't mind Thuvia and Theodore. I, I granted, you know, I I think they were more tropes of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think just recognizing that I was kind of like, eh, you know, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I, I thought I thought they I thought it was a good novel. Uh, definitely, like I, I think the adventure seed for the you know, I actually I really liked the double uh, double indirection of you know the 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 Therns are using the the lower races, you know, the red and green Martians, and in turn the firstborn are using the Therns. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a you know, I thought that was and, and everyone's being being used by 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 Isis. Yeah. But the fact that there were uh, you know a few layers within that, I I that may have been very common at the time, but I, I thought that was fairly prescient of him to, you know, use a few layers of indirection for the villain like and that. It, I thought. It, it does sort of follow the standard, you know, D and D plot, right? As you're as you're going down through the dungeon, you find one group of enemies, and then you progress to a more powerful group of enemies, and and they have a leader who who's working, and and you find a note in his pocket that he's working for a a a, a different guy, right? Yeah. So, so I guess if if you're if you're a GM. And you're looking for inspiration for some really cool monsters, because I mean, there's 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 some cool monsters in this in this story, not as many as in uh, as in Warlord, um, but but uh, uh, dungeons, like really creepy dungeons, you know, uh, early early Dungeons and Dragons, I think, depended a lot more on the GM describing everything and the players like. You know, the your your characters needed to have torches, and they needed to, to be to be able to see, and they needed to keep track of like how far they could see and how many torches they they had, right? And and you can yeah. sort of see the inspiration in in this story because because Carter spends a lot of time in in the dark in the in these tunnels, and it's it's not like little you know twenty by thirty foot rooms like these are like you know mountains that are filled with these maze like like passages. Yep. Well, underground seas and all this stuff, yeah. So, I mean, you you can sort of see where where all that early, you know, dependency on 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 light and 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 description and and all that stuff uh, came from. And, and if if you would like to take your campaign uh, back to those days where you didn't just roll a perception check and the GM told you everything, right? I mean, this this would be good 
good reading for you. You know, I had a discussion with uh, in my carpool. We were talking about this book and and uh, in relation to D and D and and you this should, book. You should get those people on the show. I I really should actually. He's <laughs> he well, it's, it's only one other person, but you know, we were talking about this and and this book, along with like Robert E. Howard's Conan novels and you know Conan stories and some things, they're much more evocative of first edition D and D. Whereas second and well, really. I, as I was thinking about it, and, and I suppose I, I could be, you know, this is just a supposition on my part, but really where D&D sort of gained its current high fantasy trappings and style of play was when they introduced the Forgotten Realms. Prior to that, you know, the world of Greyhawk was more or less the, the default world for mm-hmm. D&D. Well, it was never official, but, right. but it, it, it has a much more, you know, if you read the materials that were available at the time, it, it feels much more like... John Carter's Mars and uh, Hyboria for Conan and and you know the those types of uh, those those types of novels and stories and things like that and consequently the the play feels much more in line with how the descriptions here and the and the trappings and the environments and the you know things like that in these novels are much more in line with how D and D felt and would play than say Tolkien's novels which right. you know much higher fantasy now that and now that Forgotten Realms when it came aboard and became the sort of the de facto standard for second and and then going forward it gained a lot of those high higher fantasy trappings with, I think, I think Dragonlance yeah. actually came before Forgotten Realms if I'm getting my history correct it, and, it did and it did. and and Dragonlance actually launched like with a series of of novels and a series of adventures, you know, based on those on those novels, right? And 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 yeah. and, the, and the whole world was sort of centered around, which I think is improper grammar, uh, this this group of characters and their epic quests from 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 the novels. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but yeah, I think I think uh, Forgotten Realms kind of, I mean, yeah, I, early for, for forgotten realms and and more recent forgotten realms are, are i think are very different places so i mean that's that's oh yeah that's with everything whole, that's happened right, i hate to a, live there between the sundering and the and the whatever else is going on i think yeah. i think very early forgotten realms was a lot more pulpy than 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 we remember i, I like yeah. it i've but, got the first edition i'll have to go back and look at it it, uh, right, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm listening to some of the uh, pre-third edition novels, and there's, there, there seems to be like a, a mix of the pulpy style and the, and the high fantasy style. Yeah, I could believe that. But yeah. Um, anyways, what did you think of the book? I, you know, actually, everything that you've said, I would concur with. Um, I. I enjoyed the novels. Um, you know, I read these years ago when I was probably in junior high or high school, uh, for whatever reason, and I hadn't returned to them. And it, this has been a, it's it's been a good trip of nostalgia, but it's also been an opportunity for me to go back and and look and say, you know what, I remember playing this kind of this style of game, and it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And you know, just to put a minor plug out there, I think the new D and D next. I, I were you able to play in the playtest of that at all? I, I played a little bit. I'm I'm withholding judgment until like some actual books come out. 
Um, and that's and that's certainly fair. And I can't speak obviously what. Yeah, there there were a lot of announcements this week, and you can hear all about them in the Tome Show news desk. <laughs> that is entirely true. But I thought the D and D Next playtests, at least, especially the early ones, did a good job of evoking the feel that first edition AD and D did as well in those particular in the in these situations, I, these these types of adventures. So you know, I for one am, am looking forward to D and D Next. Um, I thought uh, I thought it captured that feel from first edition AD and D very well. Um, with some of the sensibilities and mechanics that you know from the later editions that definitely made play easier and better, but the the feeling you might say the I don't know the fluff whatever you want to call it I thought captured this style of adventure that is depicted in these books um, much better. So I'm I happen to be a big fan of D and D Next uh, coming forward, but as you said, we'll find out what the final All right, product folks, is. Folks, you you heard it here. If 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 what you've heard today in the show gets your red-hot Virginian fighting blood boiling, <laughs> go out and buy Dungeons and & Dragons. And also read, read these books because they, they are very, very uh, fun to read. All right, so my guest today was Jay Kent. Uh, Jay, can you uh, recap all the various ways that uh, people can find and talk to you? Yeah, the uh, the easiest is probably Twitter. I'm at icosahedron. Also, I happen to participate in a podcast called RPG Circus that comes out once every two weeks with uh, another co-host named Jeff. And um, other than that, you can also well those those two avenues are probably the best. Uh, do you still have your have your blog? I do actually. ExpertiseDice.com. Yeah, so I have that as well. That I don't really have a method for commenting on that, though. That's just some articles I put up, and then I solicit comments either via Twitter or email via addresses on the contact page on that blog. Okay, but all, all you listeners out there, you should still go read Jay's blog. Or Thank else you, John Carter will come for you. Yes, and he'll steal your women. <laughs> no, he doesn't, he doesn't steal women. Oh, that's true. He doesn't. The Therns will steal your women, and John Carter will rescue them. Right. Okay, so thank you listeners once again. Thank you for joining us for another amazing discussion of an amazing book. Join us again in just a few weeks. We will be putting out a bonus episode on The Warlord of Mars, which concludes the story we just discussed. If you would like to be a part of that episode, please contact The Tome Show. And here is some information on upcoming episodes in case you would also like to get involved with those. In June and July, we, we will be sticking with Edgar Rice Burroughs, but moving away from Mars as we read At the Earth's Core and Pellucidar, the first two books in the Pellucidar series. You can find free HTML and ebook copies at Project Gutenberg, www.gutenberg.org. For August, I'm excited that we are going to read The Moon Pool by Abraham Merritt. Uh, I'm excited because I know absolutely nothing about this story or the author, and yet Gygax cites him as one of his most important influences. So it should be very interesting. You can find A. Merritt's stories at Gutenberg.org. Finally, in September, we will be reading The King of Elfland's Daughter, the novel by Lord Dunsany. You can find a free copy at FatedPage.com where it's listed under the author's actual name, Edward Plunkett. 
Uh, to get more details about our recording schedule, and especially if you want to volunteer, please email Jeff Greiner, host of The Tome Show, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Make sure to put Appendix N in the subject line. Please send along any questions, comments, or feedback to that email address as well. You can also visit The Tome Show's webpage at www.thetomeshow.com. This has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 3, The Gods of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Thanks for listening.